The verdicts today is actually is against all American people. You're going to be convicted on your First Amendment rights. All Americans should be wary. This fight has just begun. Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. The reason that we have all guilty verdicts is they are making a point out of guy, and that is to intimidate the other members of the one sixers. And we will all fight together. What's the next step for your family? To continue to fight. Guy was used as an example today to make all the one sixers take a plea. Do not take a plea, one sixers. Do not. We got this. Of season two, episode six, Pathway to Prosecution. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news analysis on the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction was provided today by Nicole Reffitt, uh, the wife of a now convicted Capitol attacker, Guy Reffitt who brought a gun to the Capitol on January 6th and was convicted of five felony counts. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual episode. I'll explain why in a minute. Um, But first, as always, let's go through the numbers. Uh, It's progress with the latest course of arrests, convictions, and other court proceedings. As always, courtesy of the good people at Sedition Tracker. There have been a total of 762 individuals charged, an increase of nine since the last episode. There have been a total of 374 indictments, an increase of 10 since the last episode. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always. 231 convictions, an increase of 11 since our last episode. And 97 sentencings, an increase of four since the last episode. So, Refit. Again, convicted on a five, sorry, five counts altogether, four felony counts, faces up to 60 years in prison. And that's rather uh, significant relevant. Usually I would talk about that at some length, but I'm going to do something else in this podcast. So I did want to mention it. I assume most people who follow this podcast are actually familiar with the case. Refit brought a gun to the Capitol, didn't actually wind up going inside, um, but nonetheless, Uh, Also wound up obstructing justice by threatening his two children, uh, two of his older children, one of whom I believe the eldest is a son who's age 18, uh, who wound up testifying against his father and uh, basically said, you know, traitors get shot. Uh, That, you know, again, adds to the seriousness of the charges. Why bring him first? Why would he be the first trial? He's a poster child, right? This guy is completely unlikable, despite the fact that I'm sure his wife absolutely, you know, apparently loves him and is doing the whole Tammy Wynette thing. She's standing by her man. Uh, but she's about to find out that, you know, it is hard on families when, you know, someone's been convicted and is doing decades in federal prison. And she says, you know, they're making an example of him. Yes, there's a reason why, you know, not 90-something percent uh, of cases are resolved through plea bargain. And if you don't take the plea, you're going to uh, be, stand trial on all counts. And that is a risky strategy. You know, uh, the defense wound up not offering an actual defense. Guy not only wasn't called, they didn't offer a defense. Why? Well, because the, the kind of evidence that uh, Mr. Revit faced was damning, 
absolutely damning. And that is the same kind of evidence that most of these other defendants face. Now, I know, you know, there are people who are doing a lot of time in federal prison right now on the basis of very grainy black and white VHS footage. And the evidence against Reffitt and many of these other defendants, you know, you look at the video on January 6th, it seems like every third person has their cell phone out and is taking video. And that's the point of all those parading defendants. They got all that video entered into evidence. They're using it against these AFO defendants and the other people who are facing felony counts, and they don't want to plead. Uh, why would they want to plead, right? They're, they're, you know, they are between a rock and a hard place. They are looking at dec decades in prison. Um, and, you know, the, the AUSAs are going to make them hold the line on those felony counts. If you've been charged with a felony, for the most part, unless you're Carl Dresch, they are going to have you plead to at least one felony. I don't know if Nicole's never watched a police procedural before, but she describes this as somehow being unique to January 6th defendants. It's not. This, of course, is the same fundamental dilemma that everyone in the criminal justice system faces, right, as a defendant. Uh, you're going to want to, to take the plea, and those charges are there. It's a disincentive to go to trial. They don't have the resources. The criminal justice system would freeze up if all these cases went to trial. And as a consequence, you know, yeah, they, they do. They, they, you know, but they don't make an example just of him. You're not special guy. Uh, they make an example of everyone who goes to trial. And so there's a strong incentive. And I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot of these misdemeanor defendants been able to plead out. And I think a lot of the felony defendants are just kind of waiting around saying, well, you know... I really don't want to plead and get a felony and never be able to own a gun again and have a criminal record, of, you know, of a federal felony. But uh, again, you know, he, he found out, right? And his whole family found out. And, you know, uh, it's unfortunate for the children, I suppose. But that is life. Uh, that is what life is like for the family of an inmate. So we'll see how much time he gets. Um, but it's probably not going to be insubstantial. The next development that I want to talk a little bit about is the arrest of Proud Boys chairman Enrique Terrio. Um, now, like Stuart Rhodes' arrest, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Terrio has been included via superseding indictment in the Proud Boys conspiracy case. And it raises all kinds of questions that, you know, we could do an entire episode about. Um, briefly, when we talk about the justice system and judicial politics, we think that people act strategically. That's going to be kind of a little theme in this episode. And, you know, clearly at some point, a decision was made to prioritize the Oath Keepers. Why? I'm not sure. Uh, you, could, you could speculate, you know, all day long. There are many more Proud Boys on at January 6th than Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys more, more, were more violent. Arguably, their role was more important. The Oath Keepers went, allegedly... And they're looking for Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress and their, their stacks. But it's the Proud Boys Act is the vanguard. It's the Proud Boys who leave while Trump is still speaking. It's the Proud Boys um, who, you know, have the first confrontation with officers. It's the Proud Boys who actually are the first ones to force entry into the Capitol itself. Um, so I don't know. You know, maybe it's seen as well. This is less important and we'll, you know, we'll do them first. Or this is more important. We'll do them later. 
who knows? You know, it could be strength of evidence. Could be that, well, these people are more violent, and so uh, we need to have conspiracy charges to make sure these other people do the time that they deserve, but we don't have to worry about these other people because they're already going to do the time that they deserve because they have uh, faced crimes of violence. It's hard to say, you know. Uh, and maybe somebody will write a book in 20 years after they retire from the Department of Justice. Um, but all that action, there's all the action happening on the Oath Keeper's side, uh, six, seven superseding indictments, eventually adding Rhodes in and seditious conspiracy. And now we have a trial date. Follow me on Twitter. I occasionally will live stream the Oath Keeper's hearings. I'm following that case closer than, than many of the other uh, cases because this, this case is important because, of course, it connects to Roger Stone uh, because they were the security detail for Stone and possibly other insiders as well. Rhodes himself has long connections within the conservative movement and we don't know much yet about other people he may have interacted with. And the Proud Boys case, of course, again, extremely important as well, right? You got Joe Biggs, you got Kelly Meggs, you know, they have their own connections uh, apart from Terrio. And uh, again, you know, you can go right up the food chain, right? You have Terrio's invitation to the White House, for example. Uh, Stuart Rhodes didn't get that, right? So obviously important that he has been arrested, seemed to be a surprise to him. The FBI uh, came in early in the morning, got him in his underpants, gave him a chance to put on his Iron Man t-shirt, and got perp-walked uh, into a waiting vehicle. So he is now in custody, and I know there are a lot of people out there saying, well, Merrick Garland's not doing anything. There's a lot of people to arrest. There are still, you know, more people to arrest. Hundreds have been arrested and charged. More AFO defendants keep getting arrested, and we're getting closer to the center of the web. And again, my acting hypothesis at this point is that after the public hearings in April, we will uh, see some criminal charges of some more significant figures. And again, I apologize. Either one of those things could have been the subject of an episode entirely on their own. But I want to talk about something today that I haven't had a chance to do because I wanted to take the time to do it properly. Um, this is one of those episodes where I'm reading a long document so that you don't have to. Although I will put a link to it in the show notes, and you can read it if you want to. So this is a little bit of a different episode from the usual episode, at, at least the, the more recent episodes. I've got the format kind of regularized. Um, I'm, I'm not really departing from that. We still did the numbers, still talked about current events even though certainly not all of them. Um, you know, sometimes I will accidentally omit something because I've forgotten it, because I, I write all the events uh, it, I, I tend to cover on index cards and keep them in a little box. And uh, I sometimes I can't read my own handwriting or I'll lose a note. And sometimes I'll intentionally skip something because I know I can't do it justice at the time and I'm going to follow up on it later. Uh, that was the case with the Oath Keepers, right? I wanted to have, you know, that case develop further before I did an episode on that. And that wound up being, of course, a two-parter, again, with complex series of superseding indictments and superseding indictments. And, uh, you know, now that prosecution is moving ahead. So that's also true today. Um, something happened uh, February 18th, I believe, uh, that is worthy of note. And so here it is. March 11th, and I'm going to uh, get around to talk about it. And it is 
the disposition of the civil cases in court against Donald J. Trump. So same week, Rhodes winds up um, having some important hearings uh, with regard to his custody. Uh, Maida, the judge in that case, also uh, on that Friday, the same day that he actually decided that Rhodes, coincidentally, uh, would remain in custody of the federal government pending his trial, issued a rather lengthy 121-page decision in a matter that was before him um, regarding the disposition of several uh, civil cases, civil suits, against Donald Trump and some other people. And I'm going to talk about who those people are in a moment. So there's three separate civil cases against Trump. And the question is whether or not the president, former president, former guy Trump, can be held civilly accountable for his actions in office with regard to the January 6th attack. So again, it's long, 121 pages. Therefore, it gets its own episode. As always, I'm not an attorney. I have some understanding of the law from my study of political science, but let nothing that follows be construed in any way as legal advice. Now, firstly, in preparing for this episode, I, it's actually kind of nice. Judge Maida is a remarkably clear and unembellished writer, particularly for a judge. Some of those guys like to get flowery. He is very commonsensical uh, and, you know, straightforward uh, with regard to his prose. And he's here, clearly, to be clear and to make himself understood not to show off. So that, that really makes it quite a bit easier. So if you're fascinated by the law, come along for the ride. Uh, even if you're not, you'll see that this ruling itself is critical for the outcome of the overall series of January 6th cases, particularly cases involving Trump and his inner circle. I could compare that to something else that's going on right now, um, you know, which I should probably mention again, worthy of its own episode. We already talked about it. There's a whole episode on the Eastman memo. Um, but this is, you know, kind of like the response to the, to the appeal of the disposition of John Eastman's uh, emails from Chapman University. These emails are, are emails that he allegedly conspired with people uh, to overturn the election results of the 2020 presidential election. That's been decided. That is pivotal. That is absolutely pivotal decision. Not going to talk about it. Going to talk about this one. Um, but those are two key legal things that, that, you know, that have happened, right? Put them in the category of things that have happened. Eastman's emails are being reviewed for attorney-client privilege. And also the civil case against Donald Trump, civil cases against Donald Trump, can move forward. Both of these things are, are hugely significant. So, um, back again to, to this ruling. Uh, you can get a sense of Judge Maida's mindset with regard to the January 6th cases by looking at this ruling. But you can also do something else. You can get a sort of a dim, shadowy, shadowy outline of the case that the January 6th committee may make in its criminal referrals to the Justice Department, which, again, as I've said before, I expect will come at the conclusion of public hearings by the committee in April, or perhaps sometime shortly thereafter. It is difficult for me to un overstate what bad news this is for Trump. Now, as president, Trump enjoyed absolute immunity 
for his be any kind of civil liability with regard to his acts in an official capacity. So it clears the way for Trump to be subject to criminal charges. How? Well, we have, you know, that's a matter of law, right? The fact that the president is not, um, be, it's not possible to charge him uh, with the civil cases, right? Now, the remedy uh, against a president is outlined in the Constitution, right? So that's why, you know, you don't see like criminal charges and stuff. If there's accusations against the president, according to the Constitution itself, it's supposed to be dealt with by the means of impeachment. That's the remedy. But similarly, with civil cases, you know, you can't, I mean, you can't have a president getting sued all the time, right? That's a matter of law. Now, there is the question of what the relationship is, therefore, of a former president being sued, right? So you've got absolute immunity as a legal doctrine, as you know, a constitutional idea, uh, as a matter of long-settled law. That's being overturned for Trump, and I'll explain why and how Meta does that. Um, so that's that's something that's you know fundamental. Judge Meta is saying no, that doesn't apply to Trump, and here's why. But the the idea that former presidents can't be prosecuted, that's just a norm, right? So if you've already said that this guy doesn't, you know, absolute immunity for what he did on January 6th and the months and weeks leading up to that, that doesn't apply. Overturning a norm that, well, we don't prosecute former presidents because we're not South Korea, little joke there, uh, you know, that's easier to overturn. You know, once you do the, the first thing, it's that much easier to do the second thing. But, you know, more than that, far, you know, even more than that, um, you have to understand, have some kind of understanding about what judges do in the bench. They can do a lot of different things. Uh, what they do from the bench is, broadly speaking, we can think of them as, as acting strategically. And you can get hints about what they want from the parties to a case. Sometimes they're very explicit. Sometimes they're not. Some, and that's why, again, I'm going to take the time to do a close reading here. Because what I believe is happening, I'm finally getting my thesis 18 minutes in, Judge Maida is basically offering the AUSAs and the Department of Justice a roadmap to prosecute Donald John Trump. Say it again. This is a roadmap. This is Maida saying, look, okay, you, there's, in the matter of a criminal case against a former president, the bar is very high. Here's all the evidence you, including people from the January 6th committee, have given me. This is what I think works. This is the approach you could or probably should take. And here are some of the legal reasons and some of the legal uh, ideals, ideas rather, that you will, you will have to attend to. The legal challenges that, you know, you will have to attend to. The, the president, uh, President Trump had, of course, you know, filed his own brief in opposition to the complaint that was issued by the, the, the complainants, the plaintiffs. That, you know, that anticipates the arguments that his defense would make at any possible criminal trial for the actions of January 6th and the days and weeks and months leading up to January 6th. So this whole thing, it's a, a microcosm, macrocosm thing. This is a preamble. This is a prelude to a criminal case. And you've got an actual ruling by an actual judge sitting on the actual court that would hear the case. Now, I, 
I don't know if Maida's hearing this case today makes him more or less likely to be the one to hear a possible criminal case. Uh, you, you lawyer types could, could get back to me. Maybe that they, he gets a case because he's already familiar with the civil case evidence. Uh, maybe because his workload is so insane. I mean, all of the judges uh, sitting at the D.C. District Court, you know, have <laughs> workload issues right now. Um, but, you know, maybe they'll give it to someone else. I, I don't I don't actually know. Um, but it's a real, you know, again, there's a judge sitting in that court. And, you know, uh, he has an idea of what kind of arguments are going to fly uh, before, you know, at that bench. So whether or not he's the judge or not, this is, again, kind of a blueprint. He's saying, look, this is an assignment, right? Do you understand the assignment, to use a, a current catchphrase that my kids would use? So let's talk about the, the cases and the plaintiffs and the defendants. In what one might probably, with some justification, see as the lead case, uh, the plaintiffs are all members of the House of Representatives, and they are Representatives Thompson, Bass, Cohen, Escobar, Jayapal, Henry Johnson, Capture, Barbara Lee, Nadler, Waters, and Watson Coleman. These defendants are, in this case, are Trump, Giuliani, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, War Boys LLC, uh, another entity founded by Proud, the Proud Boys, uh, Enrico Terrio, and Enrico Te Enrique Terrio himself. The second suit is Swalwell v. Trump, with Representative Eric Swalwell as the plaintiff, and Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Giuliani, and Representative Mo Brooks as defendants. The third case is Blazing Game versus Trump, in which the plaintiffs are two Capitol Police officers, James Blazingame and Sidney Henby, and the sole defendant is Donald Trump. So the plaintiffs are asking for different things, for different reasons, and offer different cases. Swalwell, Blazingame, and Henby are seeking actual damages and punitive damages, plus attorney's fees. In addition to that, Swalwell wants the defendants to notify him in writing if the defendants plan any further rally or event in D.C. on a day when, quote, significant election or election certification activity is taking place if more than 50 people are permitted. So that Swalwell can appeal to uh, repeal the permit uh, for any such activity at the Capitol and also for any further relief that the court deems just and proper. I've reviewed all three of these complaints, uh, but I'm going to focus more closely on Judge Maida's decision, which I've read more carefully than the complaints themselves. Obviously, he's included a lot of information, a lot of the information from the complaints in his ruling, as we will see, and also uh, that's curated, right? So he's picked the evidence that he thinks is um, the, you know, sort of the best information with regard to sort of, you know, whether or not we can believe that there is, in fact, a civil conspiracy in this case. So in that lead case, Thompson v. Trump, Thompson et al. v. Trump, the plaintiffs are asking for a declaratory judgment 
that the defendants violated 42 U.S.C. 1985, which is a conspiracy to interfere with civil rights, the popular title of which is the Ku Klux Klan Act of 19, sorry, 1871, although the, the language of that particular section of the code was revised in 1980. Popular titles, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, uh, hereafter referred to as just the Ku Klux Klan Act. They also seek injunctive relief to prevent these defendants from engaging in similar violations in the future, as well as the same kinds of damage claims that the other defendants are, are, are seeking in their other suits. That, anyway, is, is just a, a quick summary of the three different cases. All three of them feature evidence based on public statements and communications by the various defendants. The Swalwell and Blazingame complaints do this with a, a lot of illustrations and screen captures of various social media, whereas the case from the members of the House of Representatives cites this evidence without inserting any pictures into the document, uh, which I personally think is, is probably preferable just style-wise. Meta seems to regard the case, I believe, as uh, Thompson et al., as, as the lead case. After a page and a quarter in, in his decision of recounting the events of January 6th, Meta turns to the claim that the, of, of the central allegation against the defendants, which is that they violated the Ku Klux Klan Act, which he describes as a common and primary claim. So that's the, the claim that figures, in, in other words, in all three of the cases. The Capitol Police officer's case also focuses on uh, directing assault and battery, assault and battery aiding and abetting, directing intentional infliction of emotional distress, incitement to riot, and uh, disorderly conduct. But again, the central claim in all three is the violation of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And of course, because these are civil cases, the standard for demonstrating these claims of wrongdoing is lower based on preponderance of the evidence rather than what you will find in a criminal case, uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And the evidentiary standard here is even lower, right? They just, uh, you know, at this point, need to determine whether or not uh, the, the case can move forward, whether or not it's plausible. I'll talk more about that later. So first thing Meta does is to deal with the question of whether or not the, this act uh, is the appropriate violation to cite in this context. Quote, Section 18, 1985 is not, however, strictly speaking, a civil rights provision. Rather, it safeguards federal officials and employees against conspiratorial acts directed at preventing them from performing their duties, end quote. He then cites the language of the provision in a block quote and writes, the statute, in short, prescribes conspiracies that, by means of force, intimidation, or threats, prevent federal officers from discharging their duties or accepting or holding office. A party injured by such a conspiracy can sue any co-conspirator to recover damages. Now, again, as I've said probably a hundred times on the podcast, I am not an attorney, but I am very familiar with the history behind the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And in this context, I would like to refer you to episode six, The Impunity of White Mobs, uh, recorded in June of 2021. The historical background uh, behind this law bear an uncanny resemblance to what we see today. We had vigilante mobs of white red shirt and other militias self-deputize themselves against federal authorities, 
Um, and so, you know, it's a directly interesting parallel, right? The civil rights of freedmen were routinely being violated in the American South uh, in the Reconstruction era. And so, therefore, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 was designed to prevent that. Um, and also, there were problems with um, people who were being elected to office uh, not being seated. And so, as a consequence, you know, it is very specific with regard to the protection of federal officials who, you know, various white mobs and militias were doing things. You know, they were running them out of town. Uh, they were assaulting them. They were intimidating them. They were attempting to interfere with their duties. And that's exactly what the Ku Klux Klan Act prohibits. So sounds very familiar. Um, and, you know, history is not necessarily repeating itself, but it certainly rhymes with what was happening uh, back in the 1870s. So here's how Judge Maida summarizes the allegations contained in the complaints. Quote, they allege that before January 6th, President Trump and his allies purposely sowed seeds of doubt about the validity of the presidential election and promoted or condoned acts of violence by the president's followers, all as part of a scheme to overturn the November 2020 presidential election. Those efforts culminated on January 6th, when the president's supporters, including organized militia groups and others, attacked the Capitol building while Congress was in a joint session to certify the Electoral College votes. Notably, plaintiffs alleged that President Trump's January 6th rally speech incited his supporters to commit imminent acts of violence and lawlessness at the Capitol. Plaintiffs all claim that they were physically or emotionally injured, or both, by the acts of the conspirators, end quote. Uh, perhaps it's worth noting at this point that this list of plaintiffs appears to have been carefully curated. Any number of people could have added themselves to this lawsuit. But with regard to the lead case, Thompson et al., all the plaintiffs are distinguished members of the House, and they've collectively served for probably hundreds of years. Uh, this suit probably could have been joined by, you know, any number of people, but this is a very accomplished and diverse group of members who have long seniority in the House of Representatives. There's seven women and four men. Uh, six of the plaintiffs are black, one Hispanic, one South Asian, and three white, including two Jewish members. So I mentioned this in order to put it in the appropriate context. In an attack that was sought to disenfranchise uh, the very diverse Democratic coalition that elected Joe Biden to the presidency, a very diverse and accomplished group of representatives is standing up to defend Congress as an institution and the rights of all American voters. The racial element of the January 6th attack also figures prominently in the officer's lawsuit. Uh, there's a quote here I put in, quote, in the United States Capitol crypt, Trump's followers hurled racial slurs and threatened James Blassingame, calling him a, I'm not going to say it, inward, right? More times than he could count while he was under direct attack, end quote. Now, Maida doesn't cite this in his decision, but, you know, again, this is all about the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. You can, you can draw your own parallels when a predominantly uh, white mob is attacking 
uh, officers, many of whom, you know, are local DC residents, of course, uh, members of minorities themselves. And you've got, you know, a large proportion of people in the Democratic caucus, right? I mean, you know, you can hold the Democratic caucus up to the Republican caucus and which one is more diverse? It's rather easy. So, yeah. Uh, Mito then offers a quick summary of the events surrounding January 6th and the efforts to sow doubt on the outcome. The promotion of acts of violence, the fact of the attack, uh, which Judge Mehta notes the defendant's claim was dis- was incited by Trump at his rally at the Ellipse. Judge Mehta then notes the different allegations in the officer's complaint, most of which I mentioned earlier, but also including the claim that it was seen that the defendants violated Section 1986 of the same act by refusing to act to prevent the violence at the Capitol. Judge Mehta then notes the various filings by the defendants excluding the Proud Boys and the War Boys, who didn't appear, and briefly recites their arguments regarding the lack of a specific claim and various constitutional issues, which he's all going to rule on. He notes that the court has considered all of these in a five-hour session for oral arguments. Judge Maida then issues his ruling, uh, which is that the claims against Trump, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, War Boys, Ontario are going to be heard, but that the cases against Donald Trump Jr. Rudy Giul- and Rudy Giuliani are going to be dismissed. And there's an invitation there that uh, Mo Brooks should also have moved to have his case dismissed as well. Um, again, the grounds for which, you know, basically um, Donald Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani filed similar motions uh, and uh, what Maida is doing is saying this also fits Mo Brooks as well. So he's basically inviting, you know, in a footnote, he pretty much says it's like, look, if you file a motion similar to these motions, I I will dismiss these uh, these claims against you complained contained in the complaint. So uh, you know, again, good example of you know how how judges operate, right? It's like, you know, he's outlining something that you know he thinks would probably be a good idea for the defendants to do in this instance. Now, you know, this is interesting. So, you know, just looking at who got their charges, uh, sorry, not the charges, uh, who had the civil case against them dismissed and who didn't. The claims against Trump, one might have thought, you know, going into it, that those would be the ones that would be most likely to be dismissed on account of the fact that he was sitting president. As I mentioned, sitting president enjoys absolute immunity. Now, the complaints against the gang members were probably, you know, the least likely to be dismissed since, they, you know, they actually attacked Congress. There's a very strong factual basis uh, to assume that the, the, the idea of a conspiracy there is plausible, especially since both groups have been charged with a conspiracy in federal court. The claims against Donald Don Jr. and Giuliani were probably somewhere in the middle so um, really, you know, what Judge Maida kind of did was to do a donut hole, refusing to dismiss the charges against the defendants most likely and least likely to have the charges dismissed, at least, you know, what I think. Uh, but, you know, laying the two or really three, if you can count Brooks, uh, in the middle, kind of off the hook. So, you know, a lot of attention had been focused on, on, on that part of it, right, you know? Uh, a lot of the media attention has been directed, well, this is a, you know, a, a loss for Trump. Well, yes, it is a loss for Trump. 
but also the cases uh, did dismiss the uh, civil suit against three of the potential defendants, two, but really three. I'm sure Mo Brooks, uh, if he hasn't already, is going to file the uh, motion that Maida has basically invited him to file. So Judge Maida then goes over the, the claims that are made in the plaintiff's cases, and he kind of hops around from one case to another. I, I won't go into a lot of detail on this point because uh, these facts are going to be common knowledge to listeners. Uh, Judge Maida is just hitting the highlights here, and he, he will do it again later in, in the document, and I'll talk about that more at length. Um, but what he's doing is he's trying to demonstrate that the plaintiff's claims uh, meet the standard that was set in the 2007 uh, Supreme Court decision, Bell Atlantic versus Twombly, which requires that plaintiffs include sufficient facts in their complaint to justify moving forward. Um, and, you know, you could you could do a whole episode just on Twombly. Uh, you know, there, there's a sense which it, it itself is somewhat controversial. Um, but, you know, the idea is that you've you know, you're going to trim down frivolous lawsuits by at least, you know, having the, the plaintiffs have some kind of burden to say, you know, that this could have happened, right? You can't just randomly sue people. You have to demonstrate plausible claims. So he does uh, basically um, a couple of different, four different categories, right? So there's different periods of time. There's the weeks following the election, those series of events. There are the false claims of election fraud and theft under that, and the efforts to influence state and local election officials, along with the Stop the Steal rallies. So those, again, are, are elements that make this uh, complaint plausible. There are also the preparations for the January 6th rally itself. And then there's uh, January 6th, the rally and the uh, riot, of course, you know, the attack on the Capitol. And then finally the president's response to that. So what is that? What has he done? And again, uh, I'll talk about it more. This is kind of the, the subhead that he's outlining here. And later on, we'll go into the discussion section into more detail. It's just a summary of the plaintiff's cases as Mita understands them. And he has to rule to determine whether each case, whether each case is plausible, whether it, you know, passes the prongs of this Twombly test um, that, you know, again, he's required to make sure that a, a case can actually move forward in federal court. Now, Maida offers brief summaries here um, and notably includes many of the details of the activities of these defendants dating to the fall of 2020 moving forward. So in the next section, Maida continues to outline the procedural history and summarizes the cases themselves, uh, summarizes the plaintiffs and defendants, which I've already done, so just skip ahead. Uh, the next section, section three, begins on page 16. And in it, Maida discusses issues of jurisdiction and claims, i.e. whether the case falls under the subject matter of the jurisdiction of Maida's court and uh, whether what the plaintiffs want uh, in their complaints is actually a legitimate claim under the Ku Klux Klan Act. So um, in... Is it really in the context of the, the discussion section that made me want to do an episode on this ruling because it holds implications for the culpability of Trump and the other insiders that go just beyond the outcome of these civil cases. So we have one of the very judges who are going to hear this case, uh, you know, 
going at the core of this, this you know, possibility of these criminal cases also, you know, directed at Trump and his seditious crew of plotters, um, you know, effectively offering, again, what I've called a, a kind of a roadmap uh, for prosecution and does a great job of tying all three cases, summarizing them, uh, putting them together. And so, you know, this is just an outline of what would be required for a future conspiracy case. And in that sense, uh, it's genuinely extraordinary. And I'm sure at this point that, you know, uh, the AUSAs and the January 6th committee uh, are taking notes uh, based on their reading of the ruling. So the first thing he does in, in this section is to uh, address the issue of standing and challenges uh, made to standing made by the defendants. The plaintiffs have to demonstrate three criteria, injury in fact, causation, and redressability. Uh, with regard to the injury of fact, in fact, it suffices that some plaintiffs did suffer physical injuries, and which they did. And I think that partly explains why the officer's case uh, is included, why it was necessary. Um, although Representative Jayapal also uh, contends that um, the evacuation exacerbated a condition that she'd had uh, through a knee replacement surgery on January 6th. So that's checked, right? Actual physical injury. It gets a little more interesting here. Uh, Swalwell in his suit claims that he suffered emotional distress, and Judge Maida writes that, quote, the parties have devoted scant attention to these questions, implying Swalwell didn't accurately or adequately address the legal issues involved in this kind of claim, and that the defendants uh, didn't address that either. But here's Judge Maida, uh, helpfully fleshing out the argument that the parties have failed to make here. Um, he finds that emotional harm is, in fact, sufficient for standing, and he cites common law tradition and note that it, it, it neatly dovetails with the plain text of the Ku Klux Klan Act and the reasons why it was enacted in Congress in the first place. Then Maida goes on to the question of causation, particularly the claim that by Trump that he wasn't responsible, but rather that the harm was caused by, quote, the independent and intervening acts of third-party rioters, and also because, quote, defendant plaintiffs, sorry, did not properly allege a conspiracy. Now, this is going to be a central question in a possible criminal trial, right? Was there coordination between the attackers and uh, insiders? Maida notes this line of reasoning misunderstands the question entirely, however, at least as, as far as this goes. Plaintiffs don't have to prove a conspiracy, that's a matter to be determined at trial. Um, so, you know, again, that's something that we will get to with regard to the civil case and possibly any uh, criminal case as well. Um, you know, this is kind of like, you know, this plausibility is kind of like the equivalent of probable cause uh, in a criminal proceeding. So these are people who are wearing Trump hats, waving Trump flags, and we had a Klein, a Trump political appointee. Everybody had just been to a Trump rally where Trump verbally instructed them to storm the Capitol. Um, so, you know, when it comes to criminal charges, I don't think the committee and the Department of Justice are going to have to do too much to knock this claim of independence down here. But uh, again, you know, it's going to be important to address that argument. Now, according to Meta, uh, the alleged conspiracy... Uh, is entirely consistent with the intent of the Ku Klux Klan Act. And so he rules that it's perfectly appropriate 
uh, to use it to seek remedy here. So, um, you know, again, that it's not going to be relevant uh, moving forward to a, a criminal prosecution because Ku Klux Klan Act, the criminal provisions, were actually declared unconstitutional. Um, nonetheless, uh, he finds that, you know, this bar is passed. You know, it's a legitimate claim uh, and it can move forward. And there's an interesting quote uh, directly from his decision in this context. President Trump did conspire to prevent by force intimidation or threat. President Biden and Vice President Harris from accepting or holding any office, trust, or place of confidence under the United States. And members of Congress from lawfully discharging their constitutional and statutory duties with respect to certifying the Electoral College vote. Viewed this way... It is apparent that plaintiff's injuries are fairly traceable to President Trump's alleged actions as a co-conspirator and not the result of independent action of some third party before the court. So we just had a ruling, right, from a federal court in a civil case saying, yeah, no, Trump's responsible for it all. Uh, you know, uh, again, that doesn't prove a criminal case, but it is a good, you know, for people who want a criminal case against Trump, this is certainly good news. So, you know, again, Trump's not claiming it's a real thing that's actually happened, but just that it's a, it's a, it's a plausible theory. And, you know, if you've been following this as closely as I have, you know that there's a lot of evidence to show that the crowd itself is linked to central figures in the alleged coup. And, you know, basically this just underscores the fact that the AUSAs are going to have to work hard to establish the link because the Trump defense is going to challenge this. And, you know, I'm sure the committee has been working very hard on this question. This is one area where they've showed a lot of discipline. I'll talk about this later. But, uh, you know, it's hard for us to know very much except by drawing inferences from who the committee has actually interviewed. Um, and the, the committee has actually interviewed a lot of people in the mob who don't seem to be particularly important people. And raises the question of why they don't just, you know, want to get at their character. Uh, presumably, they are getting useful facts, some of which will tie them to uh, perhaps organizers and how they came to be uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. So final question in establishing whether or not this, you know, should be dismissed uh, under, you know, whether or not this is, you know, the Ku Klux Klan Act applies. Yes, Ku Klux Klan Apply, act applies here. This is a valid claim. Um, also, there has to be the question of, well, is it redressable? And this is just simply dealt with by Meta in one uh, sentence paragraph saying, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, there's financial re recourse, there's financial resources. Uh, the, the basic recourse is that the plaintiffs get paid. In the next section, Judge Meta addresses the claim that the Oath Keeper's motion uh, contains, which is that the attack on the Capitol was an attack on Congress as an institution. An interesting thing for them to claim. That the inability to perform functions applies to Congress as an institution rather than to members. Judge Mehta says it actually might be a valid point. It's an interesting point that they raise, but says that it is irrelevant in this case. Because for the members of House, you know, to make claims here, uh, they, they're doing as injured individuals. So why am I mentioning this? This goes to the possibility of the 1512 obstruction charge, obstruction of an official proceeding. 
Uh, usually, this is applied to people who are obstructing justice, but uh, the language pretty openly uh, is, is correctly applied, and it's been upheld uh, time after time again in D.C. that the 1512 obstruction charge also applies to obstructing official proceedings of Congress itself. So this question uh, raised by the Oath Keepers here goes to that, right? So, you know, well, we're not obstructing um, individuals here. We're obstructing uh, Congress, which is, you know, an interesting argument to make. Um, but he, they make this, this other point, which is basically uh, to say, well, you know, um, this isn't a, a duty. And, and, you know, I'll get to that uh, a bit later. Um, Judge Beta doesn't find that persuasive either. Um, now, in a footnote, Judge Beta finds that some defendants, particularly Swalwell, seek injunctive relief against the possibility of future injury. Judge Beta finds that they haven't established standing on that score, uh, and that they've not plausibly demonstrated any likelihood of future injury. This is an argument I think that the AUSAs should develop. Uh, the empirical literature shows that political violence breeds political violence once it has a foothold in a polity. So, as a political scientist, I actually find it possible and plausible that these members and future members of Congress could actually suffer at the hands of a far-right mob, organized by the very same people who are at liberty to organize things, such as, I don't know, uh, the sedition convoy that seems determined to just waste gasoline or diesel or both uh, on... Uh, 495, uh, the, the Beltway. So, anyway, Maida finds that Swalwell, even, even if it's, you know, I think it's legitimate, Maida finds Swalwell uh, hasn't proven the probability or the possibility that this set of defendants could harm uh, this set of plaintiffs again in this way. Um, you know, I, I mean, I really, I, I whatever. But again, it's not a one-sided ruling, right? It's not one side against Trump. Uh, this is yet another aspect where he is ruling for the defendants. Having dispensed with that, next Judge Beta rules on to uh, moves on to dismiss Trump's claim of absolute presidential immunity from civil suit, which again is a matter of established law. And why why doesn't he find that? You know, it, it's a big question. So this is the section that's attracted the most press attention. Um, but, you know, in some sense, it's, you know, not as interesting in this context as a blueprint, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a hurdle that has to be overcome, I think. And it sets the standards like, well, if we don't have absolute immunity in a, a civil case, you know, perhaps also the norm of not prosecuting people uh, criminally, you know, after they're, if they're in their post-presidency, perhaps that we can look at that as well. So let, let's go over what Meta does in addressing the arguments that are made with regard to absolute immunity. Trump claimed that he was acting within the outer perimeter of his official presidential duties. And Judge Meta says that's not an easy issue. Uh, but again, rules in favor of the plaintiffs, except for that one claim I already mentioned uh, with regard to Swalwell. So... In this context, uh, the defendants raise Nixon versus Fitzgerald and summarizes the reasons why the Supreme Court found that a president who was subject to lawsuits in the performance of his official duties would be hamstrung, right? So 
again, that's something that Nixon versus Fitzgerald, again, you know, citing other things as well. Um, you know, Nixon v. Fitzgerald finds that, no, no, you, you can't, we can't have presidents being sued uh, all the time. Now, Mena then notes the limits that are also established uh, in Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Quote, the sphere of protected action must be closely related to the immunity's justifying purposes. And Mena goes on to write, quote, the Supreme Court contemplated that at least there might be some actions by a president that would fall outside the outer perimeter of his official responsibilities and expose him to a civil suit. Maida then moves to a case that he finds relevant in defining the limits, which is Clinton v. Jones. And he winds up citing the, uh, Clinton v. Jones a number of times, uh, a case that, of course, I'm sure many listeners will remember. The very, you know, rationale that was used to say that the uh, civil case against Bill Clinton could, go, uh, you know, occur back in uh, 97, uh, are used here to say, yeah, well, you know, you can have a civil case against Bill Clinton, a sitting president. You can have a civil case uh, against a, a former president, Donald Trump. So, you know, why? Well, um, you know, immunity is related to the ability to perform duties, Right. So, you know, the, the key question as Maida sees it now is whether or not there's an official duty at stake. So um, the, the, the reason for the immunity, again, offered in uh, Fitzgerald, uh, relates to, quote, such officials to perform their designated functions effectively without fear of a, that a particular decision might give rise to personal liability. So in this regard, Immunity doesn't apply to unofficial conduct. So when Bill Clinton was sexually harassing Paul Jones, allegedly, um, you know, that was not official conduct. Similarly, when Donald Trump was plotting to overthrow uh, the, and overturn the election of Joe Biden in 2020, that was not official conduct. So Meta notes that the burden's on Trump here to establish the claim of immunity, and the key question is whether or not this falls under official conduct. Uh, according to Trump, in their argument, his tweets and his efforts to spread disinformation regarding the outcome of the 2020 presidential election um, were at the core of his official duties uh, because he's you know, taking care to see that the law is faithfully executed. Meta doesn't find it persuasive. Uh, he, he said that, you know, this wasn't going to be easy, right? Uh, it kind of is. Um, and he just deals with it by writing, quote, the court finds that President Trump's take, clear, take care clause argument is misleading and wrong as a matter of law and that his contention with respect to the speech of public opinion is too simplistic, end quote. He then demolishes this argument over the space of three pages. Critically, Judge Maida writes, quote, President Trump cites no constitutional provision or federal statute that grants or vests in the president or the executive branch any power or duty with respect to the certification of the Electoral College vote, at least in the manner in which he conceives it. That is because there is none, end quote. Now, that's the judicial equivalent of a mic drop right there. Um, 
And of course, it, it makes perfect sense. And you, you can look at the language of the Constitution and the language of the Electoral uh, College, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> the, with regard to the Electoral Count Act. Uh, and, you know, the president doesn't have a, a role to play. And golly gee, why is that? Um, you know, it, it makes sense that the president wouldn't have a role with regard to the certification of the electoral votes. Um, and the Electoral Count Act is actually very specific. And Maida talks about the fact that the Electoral Count Act specifically assigns seating designations. So, you know, um, if it's silent on what the role of the incumbent president is, it's clearly because the incumbent president has no role, right? Doesn't say anything about the role of the president, because guess what? The incumbent president has no role. Quote, so perhaps it is not surprising that President Trump does not identify any law relating to the certification that he was purportedly executing through his tweets and the January 6th rally speech. End quote. It doesn't exist, right? There is no law saying that, you know, the president is any way relating to this. And therefore, the president could not have been acting in an official capacity. He has no official role in this process. Therefore, he has no official capacity. Now, I should mention here, because Maida is silent on this point, that there's a pretty obvious reason not to give the incumbent president any power with regard to the certification of the election of the incoming president. Uh, that is clearly a recipe for abuse. That is how you get government by dynastic uh, succession rather than the outcome of democratic elections. It is antithetical to the process of a democratic republic to have a role for the president in that process. Monarchs get to choose their successors, but in liberal democracies, this is supposed to be decided by voters. And moreover, this is kind of the, the hallmark of sham democracies. So, you know, for example, during the, the era of one-party rule of the PRI uh, in Mexico, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, there was a tradition of presidents choosing successors uh, called Eldesdado. Excuse me, I, I don't speak any Latin languages. Basically, the finger, right? Eldesdado. Sorry, Eldesdado. Uh they would give them the finger. What does that mean? They would point to their successor. Um, really not that, that complicated. Mexico, uh, one of the ways they were trying to get around some of the authoritarian uh, systems that had been in place before the imposition of the, you know, of the, the Mexican Constitution was that they limited uh, presidents to one term. That's great. That's a great idea. If you want to limit the authority of the executive, just say, um, you know, well, you, you just get one term. Although... There's a sense in which, if you have that, just sets yourself up for a situation where no president ever has to worry about re-election. So maybe it's not that bright of an idea. Uh, nonetheless, um, because you have you know one-party rule and you have electoral corruption, uh, you know you've got a situation where therefore uh, the person who wins a party nomination becomes uh, the president. So you know, um, yeah, this norm was created within the pre whereby the outgoing president would select the incoming president. And, uh, you know, that's not a great formula for democracy. So it's fairly obvious that you don't want to give the outgoing president veto power over whether or not the incoming president is seated, particularly if that outgoing president just lost an election to the incoming president. 
So, yeah, Trump has no role here. He has no role to take care of anything. The take care clause argument is moot. And as Maida points out, Congress is a co-equal branch of government that's not under executive control. And so any interpretation of the take care clause usually uh, is applied to officials who are under the president in the chain of command, which Congress is not. Made also notes that the means by which the president might take care in the context of an electoral dispute is by means of a lawsuit, right? You don't get to authorize a mob to attack Congress. You know, that's not a legitimate function of, a, of the, the take care clause. Um, so, it, you know, that's just not, you know, powers of the presidency are described in Article 2 of the Constitution and, you know, authorizing a mob to attack Congress ain't one of them. Mader writes, quote, The court's holding is limited to President Trump's condition that any his mere exhortation to carry out cert- certification duties in a particular way falls within the take care clause. End quote. So, pretty handily dismiss, dispenses with this take care clause activity. Uh, and I don't know, you know, if this is going to be relevant to the criminal case, I suspect that it might. Although here, Trump is using it to try to invoke absolute immunity, and Meta just uh, lays out a very, very clear rebuttal that could be taken up by the government uh, while they're, you know, making their case with regard to criminal conspiracy. And of course, you know, they can cite it, right? They can cite this decision uh, in uh, the civil case, in any criminal cases um, that, you know, wind up uh, getting used in the argument at trial. All right, so moving on to the next subsection of the discussion, Judge Maida engages the Trumpist claim that Trump's incitement via his tweets, his various rallies, and the speech of the ellipse were simply speech on his part, protected speech and therefore a central part of his job as the president of the United States. Now, Maynard agrees with Trump's argument that speech on the issues of the day is a central part of the official duties of the presidency, but as we've seen, you know, uh, that, that's, that's really kind of conditional. In the next paragraph, Maynard questions whether or not Trump was again acting in an, in an official capacity or in some other capacity. Quote, the president's proposed test that whenever and wherever a president speaks on a matter of public concern, he is immune from civil suit, goes too far, end quote. And again, he cites Clinton v. Jones on this question and finds that to say that the president spoke on a matter of public concern does not dispositively answer the question of whether he enjoys absolute immunity for such speech, right? So Trump is basically saying, I can say anything and I don't have any immunity because anything I say while I am president is part of my duties as president. Um, and made us say, no, that's a matter of settled law. You look at Clinton v. Jones, right? I mean, this is within our, our living memory. Anyway, it's it's kind of a, a ridiculous. Um, now, for some judges, maybe that would suffice, right? He's going to Clinton v. Jones and said, no, this is not an official duty. Uh, so, you know, therefore your speech isn't protected because you're, you're not even supposed to be involved in this. Um, but for Judge Maida, that's not enough. He then goes on to give some concrete examples of what kind of speech 
the president can engage in that wouldn't be considered speech in an official capacity. So like all good legal documents, Maida's tone is dry and factual uh, in this decision, but here he gets really specific and cites examples that are clearly examples that, that no reasonable person would conclude are speech by a president acting in an official capacity. You know, he's, he's, this is, you know, just even the examples he cites, you know, again, it's another mic drop. This is an, another moment of, of sarcasm. You know, they're like, okay, well, what do you mean? What do I mean when I say that the president sometimes is speaking, but not in an official capacity? Here you go. Here are some examples. During his speech, he instructs members of the crowd to punch a protester in the face right now, right? Would any reasonable person say that's speech in an official capacity? No, the president doesn't have the power to tell people to punch other people. Speaking, quote, at a party fundraising event before a group of high-dollar donors where he was not only discussing pending legislation, but also falsely and with malice accusing a political opponent who is blocking the legislation of running a child trafficking operation, right? So again, you know, someone says, he, he says falsely, uh, says what's like, well, you know, we disagree about this. Oh, and by the way, you're, you're the equivalent of Jeffrey Epstein, which is kind of interesting considering his own associations. Um, or, quote, appearing at a campaign event for a candidate of his party who's running for Congress and during his remarks, touting the candidate because his election will help advance his agenda, but also calling for the crowd to destroy property as a sign of support. So Maida is not citing news reports, but of course these are all things that Trump has actually done. He engages in them as, as kind of hypothetical, but these are hypotheticals that happen to have actually happened that no reasonable person would conclude constitute acts done in an official capacity. So again, I see this as a roadmap for the Department of Justice to conduct a successful prosecution of Trump. Um, now, that's not made as explicit purpose, of course, but it's a prelude and it's particularly striking when he offers helpful discussions of issues that neither the plaintiffs or the defense have really raised and gives, you know, examples that aren't even taken uh, from the case. He knows that the argument is going to argue that Trump was inciting a mob and that the defense will claim that's free speech and will also claim that the president can say whatever he wants and that anything he says in his role as president is acting in his official capacity, which, of course, again, as Maida points out, is not what the law says. What Judge Maida is doing is inviting the government to give concrete examples of things that Trump said that can't possibly be protected as speech that's not prosecutable because the, the president is officially acting in legitimate official capacity. The lovely thing about this argument that Meade is using here is that Trump did this every freaking day. He had no idea where the line between his role as president and, you know, anything else was, was ever drawn, or even that there was a line, right? So the AUSAs don't even have to use the specific examples that Judge Meade cites because Trump's conduct in office was such that he failed to see any such distinction, and, and he acted like it. So while Trump's attorneys are noting how exceptional it would be for the government to prosecute a former president for acts committed while he was in office, uh, you know, again, many of those acts were not in an official capacity. And it underscores the criminality of this administration, particularly with regard to January 6th. 
and Meta has provided them a roadmap, right? He's, you know, it's like, no, you don't have absolute immunity. No, you can be civilly charged. You did, you did things and they weren't official acts. Now, not that I don't want to imply that, of course, that this whole decision is entirely one-sided. In part of their argument that Trump wasn't acting in his official capacity, the plaintiffs argued that he was acting in his personal capacity as a candidate rather than as president. So Meta's actually skeptical of this play claim, and he fails to see that the plaintiffs actually proposed some basis to make that distinction, right? So again, you know, the plaintiffs are saying, well, he's acting as a candidate rather than uh, you know, in an official capacity. That's how they deal with it, right? Um, according to Meta, you know, that falls apart because a first-term president is always acting as a potential candidate for re-election. So that's an issue that the AUSAs are going to have to address if they ever file charges against Trump. Another issue that Judge Meta notes with regard to the plaintiff's cases is that they rely too heavily on the claim that immunity cannot apply to, quote, a president that incites a mob to attack a co-equal branch of government, end quote. They seem to think that's a slam dunk. Um, Meta is skeptical. He cites a Fitzgerald decision here, writing that this would defeat the purpose of immunity and that any test for when immunity should not apply that relies on the motivations of a president in any given act is too intrusive. Now, I personally would rather have something that was intrusive versus something, you know, to, to err on the side of protecting democracy, right? But Judge Maid is not in a position to, to really create law here. He's working as a district court judge, and that's how they should work. So government would be well advised to follow his advice here, right? Find a test that's not intrusive and doesn't rely on the motivation of the president. So the AOCs can go ahead and do that. Oh, but wait. Maybe could have left it at that, but there's a footnote here, and it's a rather long one. Uh, Maida writes that the court would be remiss in not pointing out that there is at least some historical support for plaintiff's position. Oh, wait, so in a footnote, in other words, Maida is actually providing the rebuttal to the claim of which he is skeptical in the main text of the discussion. So he's got this long footnote that extends over two pages. And I think that the government is just going to, they can just steal it. They can just take the substance of the argument that Meta lays out and use it in their case against Trump. The, the story in the footnote involves the impeachment of William Blount. If anyone, you're from Tennessee or North Carolina, you're familiar with William Blount. He's a former governor of Tennessee uh, who was serving in the United States Senate uh, and was impeached. This decision is directly relevant, uh, precisely because... Blount was accused of scheming with the British and the Cherokee to seize Spanish lands in the southeast of the United States and uh, thereby enrich himself. And uh, this is the kind of case that really would appeal to uh, certain members of the Supreme Court, right? People who like to call themselves or sometimes like to call themselves originalists. It happened within the lifetime of the founding fathers. And so it's kind of hard to, you know... Uh, imagine a situation where where you can say, well, they they didn't they didn't mean that. It's like, no, look, we we have this case uh, that you know occurred in the lifetime of the founding fathers. Not only that, it has more prestige than just being associated with the founding fathers. Um, it's actually cited in Justice Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, from which uh, Maida then cites. And if you're not familiar 
with Justice Soros, finds that he's one of the leading commentators, you know, first off, Supreme Court justice, secondly, one of the leading commentators and legal thinkers of the first half of the 19th century. And here's what Justice Story has to say about uh, the incident of Blount's impeachment. Quote, in the argument upon Blount's impeachment, it was pressed, impressed, sorry, it was pressed with great earnestness that there is not a syllable in the Constitution which defines, confines impeachments to official acts. And it is against the plainest dictates of common sense that such restraint should be imposed upon it. Suppose a judge should countenance or age insurgents in a mediated conspiracy or insurrection against the government. This is not a judicial act, and yet it certainly ought to be impeachable. End quote. So again, there's that, there is that distinction that's being drawn here. Uh, Maida concludes this historical interlude to in the footnote, noting that, quote, this tidbit of history does lend some credence to the notion that a high government official who aids insurgent in a mediated conspiracy or insurrection against the government is not acting in an official capacity. So that's going right to the heart of the government's case against Donald John Trump. Thank you very much, Judge Mehta. He's identified a key weakness in the government's position and then helpfully supplied the government with a carefully chosen historical example that occurred within the lifetime of the founders and was written about by one of the most important figures in American jurisprudence in the 19th century. And this is exactly the kind of rationale uh, that they would want to use if they ever go at, to trial. Now, Judge Maida goes even further than this in the next section, and he offers a ready-made argument that the government can just simply steal. In subsection 3 of the discussion, the President's Challenge Acts, on page 36 of the ruling, Judge Maida offers a, another standard, a different standard. Quote, rather than apply the party's proffered categorical rules to the immunity, sorry, he didn't say categorical, he says categorical. Rather than apply the party's proffered categorical rules to the immunity question, the court thinks the better course is to evaluate the defense on the specific acts alleged and, based on these facts, determine whether President Trump's words were spoken in furtherance of a presidential function. End quote. So, again, same question, official acts versus unofficial acts. Look at the words themselves. Look at the content, conduct of the acts. Look at the, you know, the exact specific examples. Could this conceivably be done with regard to a specific function? And look at the functions themselves, right? So he cites a number of cases and argues that the appropriate focus, the court wrote, is on the relationship between the act complained of and the corresponding matters committed by law to the official's control or supervision. So what does this mean? Basically, you know, again, this is just be specific. Look at the relevant acts, look at the official capacities of the president, and then, quote, consider the relationship of the challenge conduct to the claimed corresponding function of the president. So what's the challenge conduct here? Once again, Maida provides the government with a clear path forward that's constitutionally sound and also comports with the relevant federal statutes and judicial precedent. Quote, Article 2 of the Constitution, which defines the powers and duties of the president, is agnostic to the question of whether a sitting president is elected to a new term. That, too, is federal stat so, too, is federal statutory law. 
A function of the presidency, therefore, is not to secure or perpetuate incumbency. Plaintiff's allegations against President Trump accuse him of doing just that, devoting his last weeks in office to continuing his term as President of the United States, though the electoral college vote and certification process—sorry, through the electoral college vote and certification process, even though he did not prevail in the general election. End quote. Taken from page thirty-seven. And so once again, made has found a way through all of the BS. And he's done it in a way that overcomes his own objections regarding the motivation of the president and the potential obtrusiveness, right? Uh, this is an intrusive, uh, in part because Trump, they're relying on, on Trump's own explicit statements. Trump has, ex has explicitly said what his motivation was, what it was many times. And so Meta focuses on the overt acts as outlined by the plaintiffs that Trump tweeted out his desire to overturn election results, that he conducted, contacted state officials in at least three states directly to pressure them to overturn the election results in those states, that he called Brad Raffensperger an, quote, enemy of the people, that he asked Raffensperger to find a specific number of votes, and that he filed multiple lawsuits aimed at securing incumbency. That's not an official function of the president. The law and the Constitution are agnostic on whether or not, you know, the incumbent remains in power. Meta also cites Trump's conduct with regard to his rallies in November and December, noting that they did not make any reference to legislation or policy, but were solely aimed at overturning the election and at keeping Trump in office, and explicitly referred to fighting many times. Meta also refers to the tweets that Trump directed at Pence, writing, these tweets were not official acts, but it issued in order to help him win. Also, according to uh, Meta, there were a series of other acts that were not official acts. The decision to retrain, retain uh, event strategies incorporated with campaign money to secure the permit and to organize a rally, not an official act employing the campaign's director of finance to serve as the VIP lead and also a Trump fundraiser to oversee logistics, budgeting, funding, and messaging. Not an official act. The use of $3.5 million in campaign funds for the rally. Not an official act. Trump's personal participation in the planning of the rally to include the selection of speakers and music. Not an official act. The insistence by Trump and his campaign to the surprise of the organizers that the rally should include a march to the Capitol. Again, not an official act. So according to Meta, quote, organizing the January 6th rally involved no presidential function. In other words, it's all fair game. Now, as for the speech itself, it also was not an official act, as, quote, the main thrust of the speech was not focused on policy or legislation, end quote. So that's a key question with regard to immunity. Uh, the purpose was electoral and didn't pertain to his official duties or any kind of policy or legislation. And it's all a matter of settled law, settled unanimously by the 1997 Supreme Court decision in the Clinton case, which Maida keeps citing over and over. Uh, in the next section, Judge Maida dismisses Swalwell's 1986 claim, uh, which again pertains to uh, section of the code 1986-42. Uh, sorry, 42, 
1986, uh, which is the claim that Trump knew about the conspiracy that violated the Ku Klux Klan Act and failed to act to prevent it. Maida rules that, quote, but the president cannot be held liable for his failure to exercise his presidential powers, end quote. He knows that this failure to act doctrine that might be created uh, through this would have to be invoked daily. Uh, so you really can't enforce it against the president. So there's one for the defense. Uh, another claim that Swalwell makes uh, is, you know, dismissed. Now, in the next section, Maida dismisses the claim uh, by the defense that this is a political question and therefore not part of the jurisdiction of his court. Now, this could be quick. Maida says that he finds, quote, the court already has held that the president's actions leading up to the riot at the Capitol building were not undertaken in his official capacity. That holding alone makes this case, takes this case outside of the political question doctrine, end quote. That should suffice, right? Not an official action, takes it outside the political question doctrine, um, but he doesn't leave it there, right? Judge Maida, thorough as always, goes even further. He writes that the claim fails on its own. Even if he were to accept that the president was acting in an official capacity, it fails. Two basic reasons. The first is that the Constitution is actually silent regarding the speech of the president. And second, because the Supreme Court has never ruled that the exercise of the powers of the president is inherently non-judiciable, right? So, um, Maida's rather curt here. He says, that is not the law. Maida also dismisses the claim that it is non-judiciable because there had already been an impeachment. Because this case doesn't actually relate to impeachment, but rather civil liability. Quote, the mere fact that these cases and impeachment proceedings pertain to the same subject matter does not implicate the political question doctrine. So, again, you know, the idea is that, well, political questions are to be decided by political bodies. Made it saying, no, no, this is not, you know, the political question doctrine is not involved here. It didn't involve official acts to begin with. And secondly, um, it's, you know, just, <laughs> it's not the law, right? Uh, Supreme Court's never ruled that the exercise of powers inherently uh, mean it's uh, non-judiciable. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, again, according to, to Trump's theory, everything the president does is covered uh, and made a, you know, doesn't go that far. And certainly there's plenty of cases uh, where, you know, that there's legal reasonings, legal cases that show that, in fact, you know, doesn't mean, you know, being president doesn't render you absolute immunity from everything, right? So in the next section, Maida takes the time to discuss a, a rather weak argument that's put forward by Trump uh, that the case is outside the jurisdiction of the court because it's been already the subject of impeachment, almost like a kind of double jeopardy argument, right? I mean, yes, it's in the Constitution. Impeachment is, is a remedy, but I'm, I'm not king here, right? This is, a, this is a serious argument that they put forward. Uh, Maida dismisses it rather quickly. You know, it seems to regard it as not serious. Um, but, you know, apparently was offered in seriousness. Maida cites the Trump argument thusly. 
that the impeachment clause, quote, forbids further litigation of the same claims by those acquitted by the Senate, end quote. So if that were true, again, I think people would be lining up to be impeached because it would render you immune to all civil liability. Um, I'm not going to go over this argument in depth because it's ridiculous, but I'll just rely on what Meta says uh, in the discussion. Quote, President Trump offers no evidence to support a conclusion that the framers intended for the absence of any reference to an acquitted officer following impeachment to mean that such officials could not be subject to judicial process, end quote. So Trump fails to cite that because it just doesn't exist. And the, the whole claim is a red herring. All right, moving on to subsection five of the discussion, Judge Meta deals with the issues of res judicata and collateral estoppel. Uh, that basically fancy lawyer language, meaning that there's a claim that the, the complaint has already been adjudicated, i.e. in this case, through impeachment. Judge Maida writes that this could be a complicated question, but after reading his ruling, I, I would say it really isn't. As Maida puts it, quote, the impeachment judgment clause expressly contemplates that a person impeached or and convicted could face a, a tr criminal trial, end quote. And he cites uh, the decision in U.S. v. Nixon that says that the framers did envision that there could be two sets of proceedings over the same question, i.e. impeachment and a separate criminal trial. So again, these are not obscure cases, right? That's U.S. v. Nixon, and it says it right there in the explicit language of the decision. The next main section of the discussion revolves around whether the various plaintiffs have established standing to sue under the Ku Klux Klan Act. Judge Maida rules that they all do, and that they have a plausible conspiracy charge against Trump and Terrio, but not Giuliani or Donald Trump Jr. And uh, again, by extension, Mo Brooks. Now, since this section of the code no longer has any criminal penalties attached to it, it's not going to be the basis of any criminal prosecution against Trump or others. But there are parts of this discussion that are directly related to possible criminal cases, so I will discuss those. Basically, Trump asserts that members of Congress don't count as officials under the Ku Klux Klan Act. And Maida says that they were certainly understood as such by the Reconstruction-era Congress. Not really an issue that has uh, real relevance in a, a potential criminal case here. But, um, yeah, one issue that actually is relevant is uh, raised by the Oath Keepers. And the, it's the claim that Congress wasn't actually discharging duties on January 6th. Now, this is relevant to possible criminal prosecutions because of the issue of uh, the 1512 charge, that's uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. It's already been charged in many other cases and could be an issue in the prosecution of Trump and various other inner circle potential conspiracy defendants if they decide to charge that. The Oath Keepers claim is that Congress has no real duty except to observe the opening of the ballots as provided in the Constitution. According to Maida, quote, this reading of the Constitution defies common sense. The House of Representatives can only act through its individual members. The certification of the Electoral College vote, in particular the opening of electoral ballots, cannot proceed in the presence of the House unless its individual members show up, end quote. Maida also says that the Oath Keepers' argument here is completely ignoring the Electoral Count Act, 
which gives Congress the duty to certify the vote and debate. Maida also writes that, quote, under their reading, only expressly mandated acts qualify as a duty, and everyday discretionary acts, like voting on legislation or nominees, speaking to the press, or meeting with a constituent, would not. A member of Congress is not required to do any of those things, end quote. It's something like the opposite of the argument made uh, in the official acts of the president section, right? The defendants want to be able to say that anything the president does is an official act, but what Congress does isn't, even when mandated by the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. Mader rejects his claim. It's silly. Um, you know, again, the idea is that the Oath Keepers didn't actually obstruct Congress because Congress was, you know, recessed at the time. Uh, and, there, you know, it's not really a duty. Um, Maida notes that it took hours to clear the attackers from the building and agrees with the plaintiff's claim that, quote, the Oath Keepers' conduct both prevented and delayed discharge of their duties, end quote. Now I have come finally at long last to the part of the decision that, with some justification, has gotten the most attention in the media. Again, I think the most important part of the decision is the fact that it demolishes Trump's claim to absolute immunity with regard to the civil part of the January 6th attack, and that is a kind of a preamble to, uh, you know, violating the, the norm that we don't prosecute former presidents in this country. But this is part of the decision here is just a, a lot flashier, I think. Uh, this finding that it is plausible that Trump conspired with others and the mob to attack the Capitol. Maida notes that conspiracy, for the purposes of the law, need not be particularly deliberate or formal. Although regular listeners will know, you know, certainly, this conspiracy was very much regular, uh, formal, uh, deliberate. Judge Maida writes that, quote, conspiracies can be, and often are, established with far less direct proof. And he cites the definition contained in Hobson v. Wilson, which describes a conspiracy as, quote, an agreement between two or more people to participate in an unlawful act or a lawful act in an unlawful manner. And this conspiracy can be entered into through an express or a tacit conspiracy. So, for example, if you're in a mob and you're attacking police and I hand you a weapon, anything we say to one another doesn't really matter with regard to establishing our conspiracy. Um, we've seen this kind of conspiracy, in fact, charged in the capital attack when Attackers who were previously unknown to one another uh, agree either expressly, you know, or tacitly uh, to cooperate in their attack on Capitol Police. Now, I should mention again that this is all referring to civil conspiracy, but there's not a big difference in how this kind of agreement is proven in a civil conspiracy versus a criminal conspiracy. So anything in this decision could also apply to a potential criminal conspiracy case of whatever kind. So even though the press has made a lot of the fact that Maida finds that a conspiracy is plausible here, it's worth noting that this comes with a disclaimer issued by Judge Maida himself. Quote, Plaintiff's burden to establish a conspiracy is lighter than it would be following discovery. End quote. This finding here is set at a lower bar. Plausibility rather than a preponderance of the evidence as it will be at trial on the basis of this civil complaint or as it would be uh, with regard to the proof beyond a reasonable doubt in any eventual criminal case. Now, in the context of the civil case, the conspiracy relevant under the Ku Klux Klan Act 
isn't about the conspiracy to cast doubts on the results of the 2020 presidential election, or even efforts to pressure President Mike Pence and various state officials to overturn election results. The relevant conspiracy under the Ku Klux Klan Act relates to efforts by force to obstruct Congress from carrying out its duties, and also efforts to prevent by force the president-elect and vice president-elect from assuming office. So this kind of conspiracy is a little different than uh, what might be entailed in any possible criminal case involving the 1512 obstruction of a, an official proceeding charge. Nonetheless, some of what Mader writes in his decision is going to be relevant to any kind of you know potential conspiracy charge the government could bring, whether it's seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, or some other kind of conspiracy case. So the defendants have argued that the plaintiffs have not sufficiently demonstrated a plausible conspiracy. And everything that Mader is writing in this context is basically uh, at the invitation of the defense. Uh, they invited him to rule on the plausibility and sufficiency of the plaintiff's claims. I think some of the commentary on this ruling has overstated its importance in this regard, right? Uh, some of it's understated the importance. So I just wanted to take a moment to clarify the significance. It's an important distinction that bears repeating. Judge Maida is ruling here on the basis that the defense has claimed that the plaintiffs have not sufficiently demonstrated the plausibility of the conspiracy. So for the plaintiffs, uh, you know, this is a conspiracy. For the defense, this is all coincidence. These are just things that happen. So that's why Judge Maida has to rule the plausibility of the conspiracy in the civil case. Now, does he have to do it as thoroughly as he ultimately does? Probably not, but that's just the kind of judge he is. Very thorough and meticulous. The key point here is this ruling doesn't prejudice the outcome of any other case. Uh, it's not a formal endorsement of the plaintiff's theory of conspiracy, uh, except insofar as it's just a, a ruling setting aside the immunity of the president for purposes of a civil suit against him. But it is something of a trial balloon for the plaintiffs, uh, one of whom is chairman of the very committee that may issue criminal referrals against the president on this very question. So Maida outlines a summary of the plaintiff's claims of conspiracy to you know, decide whether or not it's plausible here that there was a conspiracy, either implicit or express. In the run-up to January 6th itself, uh, Trump and his allies primed the pump for violence in a number of ways. There were a series of tweets that Trump issued. Uh, he tweeted out allegations of voter fraud, fake allegations of voter fraud, but only in the states that Trump lost, by the way, right? He tweeted out false claims that he had actually won. Um, he also attributed these things to, quote, big city crooks who had plotted to steal votes. He also um, it basically said that Republican officials weren't doing enough to help them him win, as if that's their job. Trump also repeatedly uh, issued false statements about um, how voting machine vendors were involved in some kind of election rigging scheme or conspiracy, another matter that's being considered in the courts. Trump invited his supporters to D.C. Trump helped plan the rally at the Ellipse. 
The Trump campaign provided organizational and financial support to the rally. Giuliani and Donald Trump Jr. helped Trump do all this, also helped spread disinformation, and contacted state officials to try to overturn the election results. Trump's efforts also convinced many supporters, including organizations such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Also, some supporters tried to intimidate state and local officials. Now, Trump himself also remained silent when state and local officials asked him to stop. I think one of them said, you know, literally somebody's going to get shot, right? Please stop saying this, these things. Trump didn't. He kept on. Trump supporters also organized two rallies in D.C. Many of you, of course, will be familiar with that. November 14th, 2020 and December 20, 2020. And Proud Boys and Oath Keepers attended both of those events. And at the December rally, Stuart Rhodes said, quote, uh, he needs to know from you that you are with him and that if he does not do it now while he is commander-in-chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war, end quote. Trump also announced that the January 6th rally uh, on Twitter was going to happen uh, in a tweet on December 19th. Um, and this, by the way, you know, that's something that we've seen many times in the charging documents. There's some things that's curious that are absent in the charging documents. This is something that is absolutely uh, quite common. Uh, you know, various defendants uh, expressing the, you know, their desire to attend um, or, you know, borrowing express language uh, from that particular tweet. The tweet, quote, statistically impossible to won the, to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. Now, uh, again, why does this matter? Well, there's this implicit uh, or even express coordination. So in response to this tweet, Trump, reporters, Trump supporters did the following. They took this as an invitation to violence. Supporters on the Donald.win spoke about bringing weapons to D.C. Supporters on Twitter and elsewhere began talking about occupying the Capitol and started using the hashtag Occupy Capitals. Um, interesting side note, of course, that is a hashtag that they stole from the Occupy movement. Um, but, of course, the Twitter supporters of Donald Trump at this point in time, uh, you know, use many other hashtags as well, such as We Are the Storm, 1776 Rubble, uh, Stop the Steal 2021, etc., and so forth. Proud Boys and Oath Keepers also began to plan and work together, as documented in the allegations against both of those organizations. Rhodes announced an alliance with the Proud Boys on Facebook. Terrio posted on Parler that the uh, Proud Boys would be at the rally in record numbers. And again, also uh, in the, those, all these things are in the charging documents in relevant cases. Two groups, both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, also prepared for the events of January 6th by buying tactical equipment, uh, including bear mace. On January 5th and 6th, Trump tweeted out that the election was fraudulent and that Pence could overturn the results. Trump also tweeted that 
quote, is being inundated by people who want to see an election, who don't want to see an election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats. Also, the crowd began arriving at the ellipse before 9 a.m. on January 6th. Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr., and other speakers addressed the crowd, repeating the same false claims, including that Pence could prevent certification. And then uh, at the ellipse on January 6th, Trump spoke last and spoke for 75 minutes, and Judge Maida cited uh, part of it uh, in a rather uh, extensive block quote. Quote, and you'll, you'll have to imagine Donald Trump's voice here. I, I can't do him. Uh, I, I wouldn't even want to try. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here. We're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them, because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. We have to come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections, but whether or not they stand strong for our country, our country. Um, yeah. So, and what, what Maida has to say about that, of course, is, quote, The president's call for a march to the Capitol was not, however, authorized. It was something that he and his campaign had devised. Again, another element of the conspiracy. Maida notes that the permit for the rally at the Ellipse specifically read, quote, This permit does not authorize a march from the Ellipse. At the Ellipse, the crowd began various chants. Storm the Capitol, invade the Capitol building, take the Capitol right now, fight like hell, and fight for Trump. So, again, you know, more coordinated action. Judge Maida again quotes directly from the conclusion of Trump's speech, citing it again in a block quote. So we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, and we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try to give the Democrats our hopeless. They're never voting for anything, but we're going to try to give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try to give them the kind of pride and boldness they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. End quote. So that was from the very end of Trump's speech, and before Trump was done, of course, the Proud Boys had already reached the outer perimeter. And... Um, also, in Maida's description, if you're familiar, the milkshake quote, uh, where he says, quote, let's take the fucking capital. Uh, that makes it in here. So, uh, nice uh, recognition of, of milkshake there. Um, although, there's actually a little bit in response to that, where Maida gets it slightly wrong. Um, but, you know, I don't know how many times he's seen the video. Anyway, also... They had broken through the outer barricades by the time the, the main mob arrived, the Proud Boys had, and eventually they overwhelmed the police and entered the building. Um, also, the, the mob itself told officers various things that showed the coordination and intention on the part of the mob, such as, quote, we were invited here by the President of the United States. 
So that, again, they showed um, their their coordination by saying things like, you know, we were invited here by the President of the United States. Uh, and this particular comment, actually, you know, um, that similar things that the crowd has uttered turned up a lot in the, sh the charging documents, by the way. So this can be reinforced by a whole bunch of cases that have already been admitted in federal court where they, you know, uh, they talk about the fact that, you know, no, we're here at, at Trump's insistence. And again, that can be used as, uh, you know, evidence of a conspiracy in this context. Quoting again um, from Beta's description of the conspiracy, quote, we're, some entered the House chamber and others the Speaker of the House's office, end quote. Now, that is actually is curious. Uh, you know, May is very careful, but anyone who's familiar with the attack on the Capitol knows that they never actually made it into the House chamber. Uh, made it means the Senate chamber. Um, but again, the attack on the Capitol and entering the Senate chamber uh, a part of the conspiracy. The Oath Keeper stacks are mentioned, uh, as well as the passage we are sticking to the plan, right? There's a plan. It's a conspiracy. Also, Maida takes note that Trump didn't follow through on his promise to actually accompany the mob to the Capitol. But back in the White House, he did send the following tweet. Quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a correct set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones, which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands truth. Uh, after he sent that tweet out, that tweet was read out to the mob using megaphones. Again, you know, more conspiracy. That's direct contact, uh, but, you know, mediated. But that's, you know, communication by Trump. And, of course, anyone who's familiar with the Capitol attack knows that after that uh, attack, you know, after those words went out, uh, the, the mob uh, increased its intensity. Trump also called Mike Lee, looking to call Tommy Tuberville, again, trying to coordinate the obstruction of the certification of the electoral votes with uh, members of uh, Congress. And when McCarthy talked to Trump, to Trump, excuse me, um, he asked him to call off the mob. And Trump told him, quote, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. Now, half an hour after the mob was inside, Trump also uh, tweeted one another time, quote, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Now, again, that's, you know, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you don't get to nullify everything you've done and said by, you know, one one utterance at that point, right? Should have said that uh, much earlier in the day. At 4.17 p.m., the, the video, right, uh, which we've all seen, uh, was released, where he says, quote, I know your pain, I know your hurt, and added, we love you, you're very special, you can go home now, whatever. Uh, so, you know, uh, again, waited all that time. And by 5.40, uh, law enforcement had cleared the Capitol. And at 6 p.m., there's another Trump tweet. There, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. 
And then Judge Maida concludes this, this litany of, of conspiratorial acts uh, with the note that Congress resumed the certification process after the building was, after the Capitol was cleared and didn't conclude until 3.41 a.m. So point of that was that, that is the rationale for why Maida finds this conspiracy plausible, right? That is an awful lot of coordinated action, uh, both expressed and implied by an awfully large number of people. And, you know, doesn't have to involve an express agreement. So the fact that President Trump is not alleged to have ever met or sat down with a proud boy or an oath keeper to hatch a plan is not dispositive. Uh, a tacit agreement that is one that is implied or indicated but not actually expressed is enough. The key is that the conspirators share the same general conspiratorial objective or a single plan, the essential nature and general scope of which is known to all conspirators. End quote. So, again, doesn't have to be, you know, some document, even though, you know, God knows there are certain certainly plenty of documents outlining the plan in detail. All these people were involved and in communication with one another at various points with Trump tweeting and megaphones, Trump communicating orally, uh, Trump communicating via social media for weeks, uh, and, you know, members of the mob communicating with one another, members of various paramilitary gangs communicating with one another, and possibly the Trump administration itself. So these, again, are all reasons why Meta finds that a uh, conspiracy here is, in fact, plausible. And, you know, you could, I mean, you could cite many more actions that show that there is a group of people who are acting in concert with uh, a, you know, a single plan, the essential nature of, or general scope of which is known to all conspirators. All right. So... Another uh, quote here that, that um, I wanted to point out to you uh, from Maida's decision is this. Quote, the president's January 6th rally speech can reasonably be viewed as a call for collective action. The president's regular use of the word we is notable. To name just a few examples, we will not take it anymore. We will stop the steal. We will never give up. We will never concede. Um, we will, all Mike Pence has to do is to take it back to the states to recertify and we become president. We're going to have to fight much harder. We can't let that happen. We're going to walk down. We fight like hell. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. We, used repeatedly in this context, implies that the president and rally goers will be acting together toward a common goal. That is the essence of a civil conspiracy. So Meta is agreeing here with the plaintiff's claims that there's a civil conspiracy. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the use of the word we actually does a lot of work there. Meta also notes that Trump's conduct supports the ideas that you know, there's a tacit agreement in place. Many of his messages appear to condone and authorize the illegal actions of the mob, even after they've been driven from the Capitol, right? So, you know, despite his little video, Trump continues to condone and authorize the illegal actions of the mob. Um, and, you know, I'm to some extent uh, still to this day, right? 
So Maida also rejects the claim that the speech of the rally was intended to influence Congress. Trump's saying, well, you know, his defense is saying, you know, this, this, was, this wasn't for the crowd. This was for Congress. Um, and, you know, Maida doesn't find that persuasive. Uh, he says it was clearly directed at the mob that came to D.C. at Trump's invitation. Uh, again, you know, fight like hell. Who's he mean? He means the Oath Keepers. He means the Proud Boys. He means the radicalized normies and the QAnon people. That's who he's inviting to, to fight like hell. And, you know, I think there's more than that, by the way. And, uh, you know, I know it's, it's, it's my pet theory. There's quite a bit known about various persons and organizations who bust the mob to D.C. I know a lot of people like to focus on the wife of a certain... Uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, but many more people very directly connected to the Trump campaign and people in Trump's inner circle who took part in that. And that's all part of it. And it's something that I've looked for in all the charging documents. And it's hard to find. And I think that that is the smoking gun. I'll you know talk about that maybe a little more in a minute. But Maida also rejects Trump's defense claims that he instructed the crowd to, quote, act peacefully and patriotically, Right. Uh, he noted all the instances of incitement that were already mentioned and, uh, you know, notes that the defense mentions none of these um, and that, you know, basically says that one invocation of peacefulness doesn't give you a pass on everything else. Um, and he then, so these are all explicit. These are all proven acts. And more importantly, some of these are, you know, they're, they're straight out of other cases that have already been heard. Uh, in the D.C. bench. He also notes some evidence that is maybe a little less uh, well-established at this point, but nonetheless wanted it for some reason to be inserted here at this point in his very important decision, uh, noting claims that Trump asserted links to the Oath Keeper, you know, that these these weeks are, are perhaps, you know, link, but, you know, says nonetheless that he cites evidence at discovery. So I'm curious about what Meta knows that we don't know, but again, um, he expects evidence to be delivered at discovery, proving links between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys uh, to the Trump administration itself. Um, which again, you know, why? on what, what basis? He doesn't really provide any basis. Uh, but, you know, we'll see, right? So there's the allegation that someone from the White House appears to have spoken with the Proud Boys by phone. Again, D.C. is a small town. People talk. You know, he's a judge. He might hear some things. Um, you know, I mean, that's something that, that we've known about publicly, right? But nonetheless, uh, you know, I don't know if Judge Maida is on Twitter. I don't know where he's getting this. Um, you know, presumably it is from a source that will stand up in court when it is eventually, you know, he expects it's going to be part of discovery, right? So he's gotten that information somehow. Mena also notes that there's a connection between Stone and Trump and Stone and the Oath Keepers. So, you know, that's going to be part of Discovery as well. The Oath Keepers case, of course, is coming up. Now, Mena doesn't use either of these two things as proof of plausibility. The theory says, I'm not relying on those. Just be aware that these things are out there, which is a heads up for people who are following this case, right? I mean, the government... You know, has already got this information. Meta expects a discovery. Um, and he writes, quote, discovery might prove that connection to be an important one. 
So why did you are you know why we have these cases against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Oh, those are conspiracy cases. Hmm. You you know there are superseding indictments that can be issued. Now another key claim made by Trump that would certainly be made in a defense against any criminal case is that the mob was independent of Trump and that Trump didn't coordinate with them. Mader writes, quote, that argument ignores the multiple ways in which the president interacted with his supporters, including organized groups. And here again, he refers to Hobson and the definition of a civil conspiracy, quote, a pattern of mutually supportive activity that supports a plausible conspiracy. Maida then concludes that the evidence is too thin against Giuliani or Trump Jr. to warrant their conclusion in a civil conspiracy case, um, but concludes by saying, to sum up, the court holds that plaintiffs have successfully pleaded a 1985 conspiracy claim against President Trump, the Oath Keepers, and Terrio. Now, that's all, you know, that whole section they out, he outlines evidence that is all you know taken from the plaintiffs. That's already much of it been admitted in court in many criminal cases against capital riot defendants, or have been established as facts elsewhere, or things that are known to the committee. Um, and certainly, you know, there's been public reporting on them. But it brings us to the most what I think is the most closely guarded piece of evidence against the Trumpist conspiracy. The fact that these people didn't show up just at random. Now, as I've mentioned before, I know I've gone through the entire universe of statements of fact for the various violent defenders at the Capitol. And what's striking to me is what's missing. If you look at all these documents, they almost never mention how any of these people got to D.C. or where they stayed or how they paid for their accommodations, which is a startling omission given the last, you know, the, the degree of specificity with regard to other facts involved in their cases. Um, you know, I mean, the attack was clearly premeditated. You might want to mention how people got there and, and what they did. It's very, very hard to find any of that in any of the charging documents. It's kind of a glaring omission. And to my mind, it could be the smoking gun that proves it all, right? The premeditated nature of the attack and the direct link between the Trump campaign and the violent mob. I know a lot of people, again, they like to point their fingers at, uh, you know, the wife of a certain Supreme Court justice, but the, the link is going to be much more direct than that. So let me kind of wrap it up. Um, I know there are a lot of people who are skeptical that Trump is ever going to be charged. There's a lot of frustration directed at Merrick Garland, which I understand. I've said from the very beginning, if you go look, listen to episode one, you know, if you were to cynically plot out the timetable for this, you would want to maximize electoral impact. Therefore, you know, sometime in the spring, right? But I, I feel like someone who's given cue drops here, the truth is I don't know. I don't know when and if Trump will be charged. Could be right. And if, you know, um, Trump isn't charged, I will be just as angry at Merrick Garland as anyone else. But remember, you know, the principle of absolute immunity uh, has been compromised here, right, in this decision, this finding that none of this was an official act. And so something that's weaker than that, like the norm that former presidents don't get prosecuted, that can, can more easily, in my view, be set aside now. 
So that's why I wanted to do this episode. It's so extraordinary. Uh, you know, absolute immunity is, you know, it's a legal fact, right? It, it is something that we have. Um, and, you know, the idea that we don't impeach former presidents, that's just a norm. Um, and so, you know, this, this ruling is huge when you consider that former presidents can't be charged criminally. It's just a norm. And so I think this was a, a necessary hurdle to overcome. And I believe that that's the reason why these lawsuits were filed in the first place, right? This isn't a cash grab on the part of, uh, you know, random uh, members of Congress and random uh, Capitol Police officers. No, they needed to file this in part to uh, get this, you know, basic idea of immunity uh, out of the way. And, uh, you know, to establish the fact that, you know, it, that this was, none of this was done in an official capacity. You know, being a re elected is not necessarily part of the job of the president, right? So we'll see. But I think that overall in all, this is extremely good news. And again, things are happening at an extremely rapid pace. Uh, and if you want to keep on top of at least some of them, uh, please do continue to listen. I value your listenership. Please follow the show on Twitter, uh, at CapInsurrep. And thank you so much. Have a lovely weekend.